Welcome to another Faith and Culture Conversation. As pastors, ministers, and elders, we believe the enemy is after your hearts and minds, so we're stepping into the fray. Today, the guys discuss the biblical first principle of man's God-given dominion over creation. What is man's relationship and responsibility toward the earth today? Should we build that house or save that habitat? Should we hug the trees or chop them down? Welcome to the conversation. All right, great to be back with everyone today. We are here together with Kyle Wisdom. Hey. And Van Minter. What's up? And Keith Lowry. Hey there. And myself, Ben Lowry. We're all engaged in ministry at Lake Ridge Bible Church, different capacities. And I want to go kind of go back to the beginning of why we're doing a faith and culture conversation at all, and why we began this faith and culture conversations podcast around the topic of first principles. We we see a lot of the modern debates and hot topics sort of swirling around these Genesis first principles. Um, that God created certain things, made the world a certain way, and called it good, and that Satan's got this agenda to unmake what God has made and called good, and that that agenda is seen very clearly um, today in our homes, in the headlines, in our social media feeds. Um, so just as an example, we, we see Satan's agenda to unmake what God made and called good um, in modern marriage and human sexuality and modern views of children, uh, modern stories and dramas that seek to unmake the story that God tells in Scripture, modern views of human identity, modern views on human work and flourishing. We've covered all of these. And today we'd like to talk about modern views on man's relationship and role in creation. There's a there's a brand new Jurassic World trailer. Have you guys seen it? Mm-hmm. Yes. I'm, I'm a Jurassic Park fan. I, 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 one of the first scary movies, monster movies, I ever saw in theaters was Jurassic Park. And that's really what that movie is. It's a monster movie. <clears throat> um, and uh, I just love the, I love the genre, and, and I love that, that series. But the brand new trailer's got an interesting line in it where Jeff Goldblum's character, he's the chaos theorist, right? He has this line in the trailer where he says, we not only lack dominion over nature, we're subordinate to it. We not only lack dominion over nature, we're subordinate to it. Now, I'd like, I'd like to peel back from Jurassic Park before we dive too headlong into um, that series and, um, and look, look at Genesis a little bit more closely. What do we see in Genesis? What is the first principle of human dominion? found in, in Genesis? Well, I have a six-year-old at home, and we have a daily discussion about our favorite dinosaurs. It's uh, So, you know, just backing up from Jurassic Park is very unnatural for me because I spend a lot of time <laughs> talking about dinosaurs with my six-year-old. But, um, you know, interestingly enough, um, I think in the first chapter of Genesis, uh, God makes clear that um, part of what it means to be made in his image is to have dominion over the earth. He actually said, um, let us make 
man or humankind in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock and over all the earth. And so there's this notion that being in the image of God necessarily involves having dominion over the created order uh, in, in which we live. And then he goes on to say, uh, an interesting thing, he says, as far as the earth is concerned, what dominion means is that we need to subdue it. And, and that in terms of the animals, he says, uh, we should have dominion or rule over the animals on the earth. And so that word subdue, I think, in its original root means to tread down. It means to sort of have dominance and, and, um, and alter um, the the what would be the natural inclination of the world, uh, the earth, as it would just you know left un untamed, so to speak. So, I, is there are there examples? Are we are we just looking for um, conversation fodder, or are there actually examples um, where our culture today sort of has that? Um, first principle in the crosshairs of a debate. Like, it, how how do we see Satan seeking to unmake that first principle today in our world? What are some examples, in other words, of how the world wars against that idea? I, I, I mean, one of the things that came to mind, I don't know if this is uh, a good fit, but, you know, construction projects get halted because they find a spider that you know they hadn't seen before and <laughs> they say we can't touch that you listen know? if you yeah. found a spider you've never seen before build over that thing <laughs> but I, honestly and I mean, full it, disclosure kyle's an arachnophobe so. i'm i'm very yeah. afraid of spiders <laughs> it, it, it's it's more concerned over the the creature than you know making some progress or yep. things that are needed within a, a particular society or a town or whatever it's just amazing i mean after you know, sometimes millions have already been spent, and then it's just all abandoned because of a group that just—it's almost reversed what we're seeing here in the Genesis passage. Yeah. Right. They worship the creation instead of the Creator, and aren't aren't following the commands given here in Genesis. Romans one, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Right. Very, yeah, very true. We see this a lot with the climate goals that a lot of governments impose upon their peoples. Uh, in particular, now I think the last one was COP twenty six was kind of the last time all the world leaders got together and decided, hey, here's how we're going to deal with climate change and things. And a lot of the debate was, you're looking at these developing countries, places where people don't have enough food, don't have enough water, don't have reliable electricity. And they're trying to tell them what their carbon footprint should be. It's like, okay, your people are starving, and you're going to tell me you don't need too much smoke in the air. Uh, it seems to be a complete reversal of priority. We have people dying, and we need to do what's necessary to keep them alive. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I think this whole idea of uh, the fear of human overpopulation Mm. You see this from time to time cropping up, especially among the Hollywood elite. Well, you um, see it in the in the environmental movement. I mean, right. uh, there is this kind of prevailing point of view that, I mean, openly expressed by, you know, some um, some people who talk about this, you know, and sort of advocate for environmental movements. I'm thinking specifically of someone like David Attenborough, who's, you know, famously said, human beings are a plague upon the planet, you know. Um, <clears throat> that's the mentality that, not just that man shouldn't have dominion, but he shouldn't be here or as pervasive as he is at all. Interestingly enough, of course, he's 
the younger brother of Richard Attenborough, who was the star of the original Jurassic Park. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Kind of a weird uh, detour and connection. Um, You know, recently I I listened to a debate that took place at the Oxford Union. The Oxford Union was, it's a debating society kind of loosely associated with Oxford University. It's in Oxford, mostly most of the members are Oxford students, but they recently uh, hosted a debate and the proposition was um, that human beings need to move beyond eating meat. That was the, that was a proposition. And um, it was a moral proposition. Not it was, like a supply yeah, and they were basically arguing everyone should become vegan for moral reasons, ethical reasons. And the, the initial speaker in favor of the proposition uh argued that essentially human beings are just one of another number of competing species on the planet. And she equated uh, killing animals for consumption with murder. Mm-hmm. She said, we, we're against killing of human beings. We're against consuming of human beings. Ergo, we should be against killing of animals. And so, the, I mean, she didn't unpack this really, but the presupposition underlying it is that we're just no different than chickens or ruminants in our standing in the in the world. Or maybe another way to say it is they're in the same position as human beings. And so the notion of dominion is completely evaporated in the whole consideration on the question of uh, meat-eating. Well, nobody told the dinosaurs that in Jurassic Park. <laughs> yeah, I true. Mean, yeah. They had no problem eating us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think it's another good example of how some of these first principles and the ways that um, the world attacks them all sort of intertwine. They're, they're, they're interlaced because, you know, Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, uh, she had some of her chief backers among those who were these proponents of this overpopulation of the earth hysteria, right? right. And so we need to, like abortion, birth control, keep, keep babies to a bare minimum— um, our view of children is also also is also sort of connected to our view of our relationship to the earth, um, and so there's this weird overlapping between these first principles that we see time and time again, which affects you know those things affect our view of human sexuality, um, affect affect our view of human work and flourishing. So um, so yeah, the, the the scriptures are clear. We are to have dominion, but that world you could argue is gone, right? Like the fall happened. And so what exactly changed in the fall with regard to man's relationship uh, and role and responsibility to the earth? Did we lose dominion? Is, is dominion a status or a responsibility? Like what happened in the fall? Well, so when God curses Adam, Specifically, according to his purpose, he says that cursed is the ground because of you, which to me still implies authority, that because of what you have done, the ground which is beneath you, which is part of your responsibility, has now been cursed in such a way that you still have to get your food. You still have to work the ground, but the ground is going to rebel against you. And so this dominion that we were meant to have in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, interestingly enough, the ground was actually apparently like waiting on us to get there. In Genesis chapter 2, there's this interesting moment where outside the garden, it says that 
before there was a man to work the ground. It's like the whole earth is just waiting on human beings to show up. And then we get there less than a chapter later, we ruin everything. And so the ground's like, okay, well now there's a animosity, but it doesn't remove the dominion. It seems at all. Also seems like it's going to be a harder go at, um, subduing animals. <laughs> they're more, I mean, my take is they're more aggressive since the fall and, you know, you have some like our pets that seem to be easily domesticated, but um, I don't know. It seems like that's one of the consequences of the fall too. Just the the nature of animals today. Um, don't know what it was like in the garden, you know, with the animals, but um, be nice to jump in the ocean and not worry about <laughs> sharks. <laughs> It'd be nice to <laughs> swim alongside those guys for a while, you know, but uh, there's sort of this aggressive nature. and uh, The enmity, yeah. Yeah. So um, I think, I mean, we've kind of made the argument from Genesis 1 that dominion is sort of attached at the hip with the idea of being created in God's image. And we we didn't lose being in God's image at the fall. I mean, mm-hmm. even if... You had questions about that. If you fast forward to Genesis 9, when everyone's coming out of the ark, God says killing a human being by man or animal, interesting, and he says animals are going to be held morally accountable for if they kill a human being. It says because they're created in God's image. So we still have God's image, and I would argue that we still have therefore dominion because that's in large part what it means to be created in God's image is to have that dominion. And I would also, I guess, point out that, um, you know, the, the instruction to propagate, proliferate, fill the earth, uh, you know, was repeated uh, on when everyone came staggering out of the ark, I guess. Um, and, and so this notion that, you know, these instructions that were originally given in the garden and the emphasis on being created in God's image sort of adhered even after the fall and, you know, on the heels of the flood. Yeah, yeah and I, I would also say that we've got to understand the Genesis 1 and 2 context a little bit better because we it's it's not uncommon to look at that and assume that maybe it was this idyllic state where, you know, you know, there were no problems in the world and all the sun was shining and the birds were chirping and it was just wonderful, but there was work to be done. There was a wilderness and then Mm. there was a garden and God's call for man in his dominion mandate was to subdue the wilderness, subdue the earth, push out the boundaries of Eden across the globe. And so there was, um, there was work to be done. There was order and there was, some semblance of chaos just beyond the boundaries of Eden that man was supposed to engage with um, in his dominion. That's still the case. So, so it was true then, and it's true now, but our, our relationship to that work has changed um, uh, unalterably, at least until Christ returns and makes it all new again, because of sin, death, and the curse. Yeah. Right, it's burdensome in, uh, in right. a way now. Right, I mean, yeah. Even even though in advance of the fall, there was also a threat. I mean, in the context right. of of doing the work in the garden. I mean, when God said to keep it, there's a defensive um, <clears throat> sort of vibe to that in mm-hmm. the in the original language, and and the idea was that there was a threat. And of course, if you read it as narrative, you find out, yeah, there re- there was a threat. 
Yeah, there was a you know, and, there was evil, and there was a potential knowledge of evil, right. as the forbidden tree mm-hmm. in, in the garden right. uh, suggests. Yeah. Well, and kind of one of the hallmarks of the environmentalist movement is this idea that man is bad and nature is always good. But if we're looking more Christianly at nature, I mean, one of the things Romans eight says is that uh, all of creation has been submitted to frustration because of what happened in the fall. Mm-hmm. So what we see in nature now is in fact a broken example of nature Mm -hmm. so we can't look at it and go oh however it is in its most pristine state must be the way it's supposed to be the bible actually tells us you should assume something about it is broken something about it needs to be restored um and that's one of the reasons why we're here yeah yeah that's good so let's let's talk just a little bit more about this idea of dominion in the garden what what do you think it meant for man to be a steward or, or to exercise dominion, what kind of work would that entail? Like, okay, because all things ultimately revert back to Lord of the Rings. Um, we, we, we do have an example of a steward, right? Uh, the steward of Gondor. So for if you don't know Lord of the Rings, just try to keep up, okay? Um, but but the, the steward of Gondor was sort of in... Occupying the throne room of this great city of men, um, because the king had been absent for a number of years. They had not had a king on the throne in Gondor for a number of years. They had this steward of Gondor named Denethor. Now, Denethor was a steward, um, and his job as steward was to keep the kingdom and keep it ready for the return of the king, right? On behalf of the king, he was keeping the kingdom. But when the king showed back up, Denethor wasn't so sure that he wanted to cede control of the kingdom back to the king, right? And in the, in the movie, and I don't remember if this was in the books or not, but I know in the movie that the, um, the actor who plays Denethor has this line, he says, rule of Gondor is mine, right? Um, it, so it sort of begs the question from this idea of stewardship and dominion and creation, what is Adam's role? Is, is Adam's role there as steward um, to, to impose his own will upon creation, or is it to impose God's will upon creation, and what would be the difference? So it seems God has already established something that has an order to it. So throughout Genesis uh, 1, you see God create an order within nature and declare it very good. Interestingly enough, he, d- he creates things according to kind. And we don't really take a lot of significance to this when we're reading through Genesis. We should go, and this kind, and that kind, and this kind, and that kind, and creeping things that creep upon the earth. But there's something significant to that because God's actually saying it has a kind, meaning it has a, a, a uniqueness, a significance, a place. It is for something. And so whenever... Adam gets there and Adam and Eve get together and God finishes his creation project, he says that it is now very good. And it seems to me that part of the way that Adam lives as a steward rather than as sort of grasping at power is he treats things according to their kind. So he actually says, okay, so that's an apple tree, so I'm going to make that apple tree as fruitful as an apple tree can be for the glory of God. I'm not going to try and turn it into a pear tree, right? Or I'm going to treat that chicken as a chicken for its chickenness, right? Because that's the way God created it. And so however I use that thing should be according to the design God gave it. Yeah, that that implies a certain level of perception, 
Yeah, I think um, I think if we um, exercise dominion into into uh, ourselves, it become, we can be abusive hmm. with it. We we don't treat things, uh, creation, even people. We see this in James. You know, with our tongues, we we praise God and yet curse men with that same tongue who are created in His image. Uh, but uh, I think it can be abusive, and so Paul's instruction about whatever you do, <laughs> eat, drink, sleep. Do it all to the glory of God, to Kyle's point, you know, so there, there's a perspective we take and how we, it, it's the motivation as to why we carry out and how we exercise dominion the way we do as believers. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, a, there's a care for it, a fostering that reflects, I think, the heart of God for his creation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think there's a, a uh, you can go wrong in the same two directions. Um, in a number of different areas. So like God gives us authority or dominion over the earth. He also gave husbands and fathers authority and dominion in the home, like let's say of our children. And so there's, you can go wrong in two directions. You can abuse that authority and dominion in your home, or you can abdicate Hmm. that authority and dominion in your home. And, And I think that, I think that a good steward doesn't drift in either of those two directions. A good steward is, is not someone who abuses his authority and dominion, um, nor does he abdicate that authority uh, and, and dominion. You know, you know yeah. what I mean? So there's really two really interesting examples I found in the Old Testament for kind of these two, um, these two very specific, as you said, extremes on either end. One of them is Deuteronomy 20. So I was looking this up when we were talking about war, because Deuteronomy 20 is the is the chapter where God tells his people about how to conduct themselves in war. And at the very end of the pa- at the passage, uh, 19 and 20, God talks about the trees all of a sudden. He says, hey, if you're going to besiege a, uh, a town, don't just to- chop down all the fruit trees. You're going to need them later. Yeah, well, but <laughs> his statement is, are you, is your war against the trees? Mm-hmm. Because partially because, hey, you're going to need those trees later once you mm-hmm. conquer these people. But it also just seems like God says, hey, listen, don't step beyond your authority to just go and recklessly tear down things that are meant to last. Yeah, sort right? of that idea of total warfare, yeah. total annihilation of your of your enemy and his produce. And Yeah, right. this isn't just for you. This is going to be for later. You're going right. to need these things for you, for your children. Uh, another example of this is uh, Leviticus 26, and we see it show up again in Second Chronicles 36, uh, is the exile. God actually connects the length of the exile to the number of years that Israel did not give the land its Sabbath, its rest mm-hmm. from producing crops. Yeah. So there's a sense in which God says, hey, uh, you didn't exercise your authority well, and so I'm going to give the land rest when you won't. One of my favorite examples of God's concern for creation is at the end of the book of Jonah, mm-hmm. when God, you know, Jonah's really peeved with God because God won't <laughs> destroy all these Ninevites. Um, and they're Bad group of people. I mean, Jonah had some a serious beef with the Ninevites. Mm. Ninevites were were coming in and doing awful things to the uh, to the Jews, to the nation of Israel. So Jonah had every reason to despise the Ninevites. But God, at the end of all this, wants to extend mercy and grace. You know, pending the Ninevites' uh, repentance, they repent. Jonah's hacked, and we find out that the whole thing is. The whole the whole reason he ran wasn't because he was afraid of the Ninevites, because he knew God was gracious, and he didn't want to see them come to repentance. Well, anyway, God says to Jonah at the very it's the very final verse of the whole book. He says, "Jonah, 
why do you want me to kill these Ninevites? Don't you know that in that city there's a whole bunch of little kids who don't know their right from their left? And even beyond that, there's a whole bunch of cattle. <laughs> and Yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting thing to say. And I, I think one of the things it highlights, though, is God's care for creation. We see this again um, in Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about not even a sparrow falls to the ground that our mm. Father isn't keenly aware of the loss of it. Mm. When he, God loves his creation. There's also something about God's love for creation, oddly enough, in the, sacrifi- in the sacrificial system. Mm. What is it that temporarily stayed God's wrath for centuries? The death of innocent lambs. You know, it, 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 God was like, okay, no more of that. You know, it, it's, um, God loves his creation. Uh, and, and so I think that's worth pointing out here that whatever was lost in the fall, whatever our relationship is to the earth today, post fall, it's still in relationship to an earth that God calls good and is still good. And, and, and it's, it's good for God's purposes not just for, you know, whatever we sort of conceive of it. And so our role as steward, I think, to sort of bring this home, uh, for this section of the conversation is, our role as steward is to, um, well, what's a good way to put this? Is to maximize God's agenda for the earth that he created as his imagers on the earth. Yeah. Is, that, is that fair? Would you guys agree with that? Mm-hmm. What, would you, what would you add to that? Or, or how would you... Say that yourself. I would only add that as God's imagers, we're maximizing, you know, we're allowing the creation to be more fruitful, to be more multiplication uh, prone, to maximize the good order God created within it, and that the good order of creation and the good order of man are not separate, that the good of the earth is coincides with and is entwined with the good of man. One of the things environmentalist movement wants to do is say that the good of man and the good of the planet are never going to meet. We're always going to be at odds with the earth, and the creation mandate seems to say very differently that if we do our job correctly, the earth will flourish, and so will we together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the good of man, you know, the good of a family is tied up in the um, care and maintenance of their home right at some level so we don't we don't mistreat the place we live uh and say well it doesn't matter what happens to the place i live it only matters what happens to me i mean these things are bound up together Mm -hmm. i also think that when we think about dominion and how to exercise it consistent with god's intent i mean there's probably a lot of people have thought a lot about this a lot more deep i mean there's not probably there's certainly a lot of people who've thought about this more deeply than me, but at a minimum, just being conservative, it seems like exercising dominion in pursuit of the instructions that God gave in that context. And so one of the instructions was, fill the earth, multiply, and be fruitful. So at some level, exercising dominion means leveraging the earth and the animals within the earth in pursuit of God's role, God's agenda of having mankind filling the earth. Mm. And for human flourishing. So, right, and for human flourishing. And so, um, once again, you know, I mean, you can be foolish. Human beings can be foolish. You can be gifted a vineyard and decide that you're going to use it for firewood. 
or you can be gifted a vineyard and decide you're going to cultivate it and have it yield sustenance for generations, right? And so there's different approaches to things and different needs and different circumstances, and there's discernment and wisdom that needs to be brought to bear. But it's just not the case that um, you can say that— that the welfare of human beings and the welfare of the world are, you know, orthogonal or at odds with each other. They're just not. Yeah, so here's an interesting question then along the lines of um, human engagement with the earth and human uh, toward the ends of human flourishing. Farming, to me, seems like it's like the, the most obvious example of human dominion with creation for the sake of human flourishing. Um, the, the creation of food. And so that there's there's debates even among the farming industry about what kinds of farming constitutes responsible stewardship of the earth versus irresponsible stewardship of the earth. And even among Christians, there tends to be debates on both sides of this question. And none of us are ecologists, none of us are scientists, none of us um, know about soil biology or any of those things. So we're not we're not pretending to be experts, but just for the fun of it. Okay, <laughs> just for the sheer fun of it, let's 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 um, a, attempt that debate a little bit. So, on the one hand, you've got a group who sort of see centralized farming and mass-produced goods as being a collective good for humanity. I mean, we're feeding more people now um, in the world by, by those means than ever before. Right. Meanwhile, you've got others on this side who are saying, yeah, but you're pillaging the earth of resources that you're not allowing the earth to replenish. And so this is an unsustainable system. In other words, you'll never be able to keep doing this long term. Better to teach a man to fish than give a man a fish. Right. So on the one hand, you've got let's get one giant pond and feed as many people out of, of the fish of it. Right. The other people are saying, let's create a thousand little ponds and, cre- and, and teach a bunch of people to tend the fish. Right. Um, where, which of those is a Christian perspective? I'm just going to put it that way. <laughs> That's a very strong way of asking that question. I would say, you know, when you get to a situation like this, you have to start asking cost and benefit questions. And now that we're in the spot we're in, it's sort of like we're asking how do we repair a train that's already moving? So there is some very serious questions we have to ask about if we're going to change this system, how fast are we going to do it? I, I bring up some of the developing nations that I brought up earlier. You know, you have nations who are dependent upon being fed by other countries. You know, they're importing food from other countries. Um, and so there's not just this all right, let's just stop everything right here, give everybody a 10-acre a farm, and solve right. world hunger that way. Right. There, there is going to be some sort of turnover regardless of how we approach it. I would say you have to ask the question, are we getting the, are we getting the same nutrition out of the food that's centralized, which a lot of people that I speak to seem to indicate probably not. Um, you, get a lot of, you get a lot more issues with um, the quality of the food, you get a lot more issues, I think, morally with the way that we treat the animals in those institutions. Um, at the end of the day, I think you have to treat a chicken according to his chickenness, as I said earlier. Um, and so if you're going to be brutal in a way that's unnecessary, like if you could get the same amount of good chicken from treating a chicken better, 
why not just treat the chicken better? <laughs> if it's going to give you better meat, why not do it that way? So in asking your, <clears throat> excuse me, in asking your question, what's better, the big pond or the giving little ones to lots of people? Um, on the big pond side of it, I guess it's who's in charge of the pond. Yeah, that's, because, a, that's a good question. Because when we talk about domination versus dominion, you can see abuse creep in there. And so I think it would be better to help people exercise dominion over the smaller ponds and learn to multiply that the same way we're talking about being fruitful and multiplying the earth. Yeah. Yeah. So, <clears throat> so some of this is probably less of a question of Christian and more of a question of wisdom. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, there, and, and probably what constitutes wisdom varies in this particular area, according to circumstance and, you know, there are people who, if we want to support human life in places that can't grow food, then there's mm-hmm. a there's a need to, for agricultural efficiency sufficient to meet that need. Having said that, though, uh, as a general matter, um, I'm a technologist, and my, you know, my expertise is in building out really massive scale systems. And one of the things about these kinds of systems is that they loosely coupled systems are more resilient. In other words. Systems comprised of lots of independent things that just communicate with each other are more resilient than systems that are just one big monolithic thing. Right. And the size of the blast zone when something goes wrong, and something always goes wrong, uh, when you have a lot of interconnected little systems is much smaller than when you have one big monolithic uh, system. And so as a general matter, I think there's wisdom in spreading the risk and and I think especially in our day and age, uh, when there, when global travel and gl- and the risks attendant with global travel exists, I mean, you know, um, it's very possible to damage a country by damaging their food supply hmm. as an act of war. And so, if you've spread that over a vast expanse and decoupled, you know, that I think there's some you know, some real benefits to human flourishing from having more distributed um, uh, production of food. But you can't do that everywhere. This doesn't work everywhere. And by the way, in this regard, um, you know, we may see this fall some real challenges globally in terms of food supply. Right. Um, If you're watching the the future, the corn and grain mm-hmm. futures and wheat futures, they're going through the roof right now. And cattle futures are going through the roof right now in the financial markets because yeah. of what's going on in Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, in part, I mean, that's not entirely it, but that's contributing to it. And if Ukraine, because of war, doesn't plant their wheat crops this year, there are people in third world countries that are going to starve this fall. Yeah. Yeah, I would say in addition to that, to kind of advocate for some of the small farm sort of decentralization aspects we've talked about. I think anytime, the farther you abstract from the way God designed something, the more you're fighting against God's design. And so the less efficient you're actually going to be. So there's a sense in which the more our farming and our agriculture becomes so abstracted and mechanized and disconnected from the way things are created to operate the more likely we're going to be spinning wheels than right. necessarily getting more ground. There is, there is wisdom um, 
to be gained <clears throat> in making these decisions and understanding better the way the thing works itself. Yeah. So like the more, the, the better we understand soil and we understand soil better today than we did say a hundred years ago. Yeah. Um, but the more we understand soil, the more, you know, so like there's a guy, well, when I was in seminary, I got really, I got word fatigue. Okay. And all, all I mean is I got really tired of operating almost exclusively in the realm of words and ideas. I needed something concrete to do, and so I decided to operate in words and ideas in a different realm. <laughs> so I started reading books on farming, um, and uh, and I grew gardens, and I raised cows, and I had chickens, and, and, um, and I, I learned a lot during that process, but I read some books by a guy named Joel Salatin, and he's a Christian farmer who who is farming in a different way. But one of the cool things that he's done is he's actually increased um, the soil levels on his farmland by like 18 inches in the 20-odd years he's been farming there. Everywhere else they're farming, using mechanized farming and chemical fertilizers and all those things, the soil is depleting. They're fighting soil depletion. The soil on his... Like, the soil levels on his farm are up 18... So, literally... There is a way to farm that the earth gets bigger, mm -hmm. right? Like yeah. there's a way to, to, to steward the earth where the plants thrive. He, he's, he's written a, a book on pigs, and um, the whole book is about pigs. And he talks about how he uses pigs on his farm. When, when, when he needs to, like let's say he's got an area of brush and trees and he needs to, he needs new pasture land. And so he, he's got to clear some of that brush out and he doesn't go in there with chainsaws and bulldozers. What he does is he moves his pig pen into that area because he looked at the pigs and he realized pigs have shovels on their faces. <laughs> and so literally yeah. he puts pigs over there for a few months long before he ever needs to go in there and actually do the work to clear that ground and the pigs do 85% of the work clearing all of that brush and debris um, from, from that area so he, he's a really cool example in a microcosm of a Christian man who is doing some really cool stewarding farming techniques um, he, he's, he's going to by the way, eat those pigs later, <laughs> right? Like th those pigs are going to end up being bacon and ham on somebody's plate. But he honors their purpose and their dignity by giving them a purpose and a role within the fabric, within the created order of God's um, design for man's dominion. I, I think, I think, Dad, your your point about Ukraine um, and how wisdom in this situation is. Um, sort of circumstantial and contextualized and based on availability and all those kinds of things. I think that's wise. Um, and I think Kyle, your point about there's no quick fix for this stuff. There's not going to be like a single turnaround, but, but to me from where I sit, and this is just one ignorant guy's perspective, um, the, the crisis that we face when one country in Ukraine goes to war and another country in Africa starves to death, I think is a symptom of a big pond trying to feed people too far away. If, now, that may be a consequence of the fall that we cannot possibly hope to fix. And it's better that they be fed by the Ukrainian wheat harvest than not fed at all, right? Like. But, but if there is a solution, and I think we're, I think that people who are 
responsible for this stuff are looking for a solution. If there's a solution to that problem where people are able to, where the where those where those families in Africa are able to actually grow their own food, if we can find that kind of solution, maybe it's impossible. But if we can find it, I think that'd be awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems like it'd be better. Well, and I think too, you you talked about the pigs and including them in the purpose of the farm. There's something more human about engaging in this type of stewardship that actually is just good for humans, mm-hmm. right? So when I was in college, I didn't go quite as far and have a cow. Um, <laughs> Come on, a little, a little, a little cow <laughs> in, in your in your instance. Uh, but I was on a th- on in a third story apartment. I built one spring break with my brother a uh, planter box, and I grew strawberries and peppers and rosemary which by the way if you're going to grow anything rosemary is almost impossible to kill so that's a great (laughs) thing to start growing for anybody um but i grew this thing on a third story balcony apartment uh and it was one of the most steadying and refreshing things about my day i'd walk out on the porch every morning with the sun coming through the trees and water those plants and man oh man it's enriching it did something for me as a human, and I think it speaks to the fact that God created us to take care of the earth, and so it is good for us to do that whenever we have the possibility to do it. Yeah, I've, I've argued before that kind of like a hammer, you can look at the thing and understand something about its purpose from the way that it is, like form follows function, you know? You look at mankind, and it's like we were built, lo and behold, to engage with the earth in agriculture, you know, like we've got from from the joints that we have to the digits on our hands to the, the, you know, our proximity to the earth and to the trees. It's like we were built to engage the earth in productive agricultural endeavor. It's like we've talked before. Um, for some odd reason, there's a little bit of satisfaction that comes in after mowing and weed eating your yard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I, it, you feel good. There's some, you know. Uh, I know you're not growing anything. You're, you're mowing down what's growing. So, yeah. Um, but tending the land a little bit, you know, just keeping it. Yeah. That's, uh, so, so here's an interesting um, detour here, but it connects to our conversation about stewardship. One of the, one of the weirder examples, I think, of Adam's exercising of dominion that we have in the early chapters of Genesis is, um, is in Eve's comment to Satan to the serpent, when she, when she says, well, God told us, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it. Speaking of the fruit on the forbidden tree, you should not eat of it, neither shall you touch it. Well, God, at least we don't have recorded that he actually ever said not to touch it. He hmm. said you should not eat of it. And so a lot of scholars, um, most scholars agree that this was probably something imposed sort of post hoc that Adam sort of said, hey, listen, if we can't eat it, then we're not touching it either, right? So this was Adam's law that he imposed. Um, I've heard some commentators, I've read some commentators who argue that that was, the true first sin was legalism, right? Adam was being a legalist and saying, Mm -hmm. no, I think, I think that's just someone finding, you know, goblins, legalist goblins behind every tree, but literally tree. Um, but in this case, I think it was actually Adam exercising dominion and imposing laws uh, on on human endeavor that would protect God's agenda mm. for it. And so the application of laws um, 
that promote God's endeavors, God's agenda for the earth, is one of the ways that mankind exercises dominion. Here's where I'd like the conversation to, to go for a little while. Do we see examples of laws being imposed that um, contradict or go war against God's agendas uh, for human flourishing on the earth? And what is a Christian response? What should a Christian response be to any um, any act of Congress or whatever that would uh, oh go against human flourishing, for lack of a better words? I don't have any specific examples of laws in particular. Um, I think any time, though, that you prevent humans from making their own food and finding ways to feed themselves, I think you're stepping away from God's design for those things. Um, I think of places I've been to, like in New York City, where the way that the zoning laws turn out, you could have food deserts where there aren't, there aren't grocery stores for miles, and kids are eating all of their food out of convenience store, you know, prepackaged bags. And their nutrition suffers. And so it, even on a, on a local level where you've got places where the, the powers that be, those who are in charge of stewarding the resources of their city, are not giving people adequate access to food that can give them true nourishment, I think you need to be asking serious questions about those things. You know, one of, the, one of my favorite verses from Ecclesiastes is in uh, chapter 5, verse 9. It says, but this is a gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. And I think that's not just the abstraction of a king devoted to, uh, like, prosperity. I think it actually means a king who wants to see more fields cultivated. And so I think anywhere where you see a lack of food access for people, we should be asking questions of, why are you preventing these people from getting what God says they need? Yeah. It was interesting, that Oxford Union debate I mentioned on the idea of moving beyond eating meat— uh, one of the big complaints of those who supported the proposition was that so much of the earth is occupied with food production for human beings. Mm -hmm. uh, they they, they uh, took exception to the loss of wilderness in support of human uh, food consumption. Yeah. Um, and they just would make this argument, and, and without— seeming having any recognition of the implications i mean at the end of the day we may you know it, it would be fine i suspect from a biblical standpoint if we use 100 percent of the earth's surface in food production for human beings um you know that is i mean that's sort of a fundamental human need and uh but that's viewed as a negative thing by you know People being produced by prestigious Western universities, and, and, and it's not just th it's not just within the realm of food that um, that we're talking here. Like, let's let, we we could talk about this whole debate about pipelines and whether we should extract fossil fuels, um, and that's a that's a complicated topic. I don't. I I'll be frank. I don't know enough about the science of extracting fossil fuels and the potential risks involved with that, but. Um, but I, I do know that the bottom line question really ought to be for a, for a Christian, what's going to contribute ultimately to human flourishing? Um, not 
necessarily what will protect the spiders, hmm. uh, to, to Van's point earlier. Well, and also a question of long-term mm-hmm. support of human beings. Mm-hmm. So uh, I went on a trip to Yosemite, which is one of the most gorgeous pieces of earth God ever crafted. Um, it's these gorgeous mountains up in Northern uh, California. And they had this interesting thing that they learned during the forest fires of the 2000s, 2010s. Um, for hun- for over, almost 100 years, the idea was don't let the forest burn because they were trying to protect it. It was this pristine. They're like, no, we want it to be just the way that it is. And what they discovered was when they did that, they wouldn't have fires for 10, 20, 30 years. But when they got a fire, it would destroy everything because mm-hmm. of the amount of underbrush, because nothing was burning on a regular cycle. And so what they figured out in Yosemite first was, hey, we should be clearing brush and burning the forest on a regular basis. So whenever the fires came through in the 2010s, they stopped dead at Yosemite because the people at Yosemite understood, actually, the, the wilderness needs us to, mm-hmm. to, to survive more. And we can actually protect human beings by altering the wilderness itself. Right. And so I think the whole idea that if we don't touch it, it will be okay. Seems to be rather naive. Right. Yeah. Subdue the wilderness. <laughs> Subdue it. Um, so would you guys agree or disagree? A Christian perspective on dominion and, sh- and stewardship falls somewhere between mere exploitation of the earth with no thought for future generations and hyper-protection of wilderness with no thought for your brother? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, then prove it, Van. <laughs> um, no, no, so, so here's a question. What, how can the average Christian engage in stewardship? Like, let's mm-hmm. just, let's make this a little less abstract and political and sort of, um, philosophical and, and let's get into the practical. What can the average Christian do to exercise dominion? And, and be a steward of the earth. I think he challenged you on that one, Van. Yeah, I'm thinking. I'm thinking, <laughs> yeah. The gauntlet's been thrown that direction in the room, I think. <laughs> well, I, I think the starting point, you get into these conversations, we're thinking on a global scale and much of our discussion, but I'm thinking just as you go about your day, you know, from... <laughs> Again, it doesn't seem like it has much impact, but the perspective you take, starting at the home, as, as Keith alluded to earlier, in your relationships with your family, in relationships to if you have pets, how, how do you take care of them when you see a stray, you know, um, the, the reaction that you have. Uh, even, I mean, this is always something I've just kind of been inclined to do, even when I was a high school student. Walking along and I see trash, I pick it up and throw it away. I mean, just it's just taking care of what's in front of you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's having God's perspective on uh, the earth that He gave you to live on and uh, and taking care of it. So when you have opportunity, whatever doors may be open for any one of us to inject a biblical perspective and and reflect the heart of God in decisions that maybe we get to take part in making then we need to be mindful of what the Scripture is teaching us and how to go about it. And so I don't know what that looks like for me throughout the rest of today, but in light of what we're talking about, it, it, 
I've got a sensitivity to it. I'm going to trust the Spirit to enable me to do things that glorify God and and how I go about dealing with those things. Yeah, that's really good. I I would say also maybe Christians to to just be aware of the arguments. We talked about stories mm. earlier. And there's a lot of, we, we, you know, before we hit rec- the record button here this morning, we were talking about all the different weird sort of bizarre environmental twists in movies that have come out. And they're usually thriller or horror films, you know, yeah. like there's some environmental twist at the end. Um, oh, this major disaster, this these homicidal trees are because you were <laughs> cruel to the earth, you know. Um, like 3,000 foot waves engulfing Mount right, Everest. Right, yeah, because you didn't recycle. Um, and <laughs> and I, I, I think... I think it's important for Christians to be uh, tuned into the to the arguments that they're hearing and aware of arguments that show disdain and hatred for humans mm-hmm. and for human flourishing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that is that is a satanic, and I, I'm I'm saying that very literally. Okay, that is a satanic perspective. God loves humans, and He built the earth for human flourishing, and he put humans here to further and strive toward greater human flourishing and greater glory for God um, in, in, in the process. And so I think any argument that sort of makes humans, um, that, that, that sort of uh, has disdain or hatred for humans is a bad one, and Christians should be aware of it. I think that, um, I mean, I kind of, when I think about how we exercise dominion, I, I kind of uh, I think there's two facets to it. One is how do we leverage the earth resources to contribute to human flourishing? And then how do we take care not to squander earth's resources uh, unnecessarily? And, you know, Ben, you made that you brought up this question earlier about the pipeline. I mean, the reality is if you look back at human history, inexpensive, readily available energy is probably one of the largest contributors to improve life expectancy and health of human beings on the planet. Mm-hmm. So anyone who's arguing against, for, in favor of more expensive, uh, less access to energy is de facto arguing for a lower life expectancy and poor health, especially in outlying areas. Uh, so that's one thing. So. I think we need to be conserving of things. I think we can have a conservational ethic, but not become idolatrous and forget that the point of conserving is for future human consumption, not because human beings are vermin, (laughs) you know, using things that they um, have no right to. Uh, I think we don't want to be wasteful. We want to love the people who come after us. Um, But I also think that uh, we need to love the people who are here now, and we need to do those things that preserve life. So I think there's a conservational aspect, but I also think there's just uh, an active use of the world's resources. And so I think whether you're in energy production or whether you're doing biotech research or whether you're building buildings or... um, you know, fixing plumbing, all those kinds of pursuits are exercising dominion in a very practical way because you're leveraging the the world system uh, and fixing it and developing it in favor of human life and human flourishing. So mm-hmm. I think there's this conservational side, 
of stewardship, but I think there's also an exploit exploitive side where mm. we exploit the resources in service to human good. Yeah. Right. Mm. I would say kind of at maybe maybe a family level kind of three things you can do. One of them is stop calling it the environment, start calling it creation. <laughs> environment is a really it's not a good word because it just means all the other stuff. Yeah. Right? Like anything could be called the environment. And so if you're the saying things around you. Yeah. So if you're so if you're letting a, an authority or someone say I'm going to be over the environment, you're saying I'm going to be over all the stuff. It also makes it depersonalized and de- uh, desacredifies it. I just made up a word. Um but desanctifies it. Uh, creation implies that God made it, that it is good, that it needs redeeming and that it has a purpose. So I think maybe just the language is helpful. I would also say uh, at a at a basic level, thirty forty percent of our f- food in developed countries is wasted for a number of reasons. One of them is just we we just don't get it where it needs to be, or once we have it, we throw it out. And so, at a real basic level, a lot of families can just say, "Listen, instill in yourself the value of not wasting." Of saying what God has given us is good, we're going to use it. So maybe going into the back of that pantry and pulling out that uh, can of beans that you'd said, "Ah, oh, we don't need that." God gave it to you. It's a good gift. Maybe teach your your children and yourself that all the good things can be used and never wasted. Yeah, I'm with you on the canned beans, but canned asparagus is an entirely different. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, heavens! Should so, never have been canned in yeah, general. Yeah, it was wasted when and, it was canned. And, well, and, and then also teaching and on that teaching side, teaching young people, teaching children to both love creation for how beautiful it is, but also love it for how useful it is. Yeah. One of the most amazing things is getting to learn how all the animals work together in a way that glorifies God and makes the earth better for us. Um, I think that really helps with perspective and story. We, we, yeah. may, we may have talked about this before, but or I may have shared this before, but in the, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, there's this main character named Eustace Grubbs, and C.S. Lewis says his name was Eustace Grubbs, and he almost deserved it. <laughs> Talking about his name. and then But then he goes on to say Eustace, and Eustace is this, self-absorbed, petulant jerk of a kid who through suffering in the book actually becomes transformed by the experience and quite a different person. But Eustace, uh, C.S. Lewis says about him, he says he kept, he always kept with him a book of all his marks, and that's kind of British for his grades. He kept a book his of his grades. He his kept pocket. his report card with him at all times. And then he says this, and it's, and it's meant as a slam C.S. Lewis says, for though he was very interested in, for though he was not interested in any subject for his own sake, he was very interested in his marks. And I think that's a very shrewd observation on C.S. Lewis's part, that one of the things that constitutes a fully developed human being is an interest in things outside yourself for their own sake. And I think this is a, a fundamental aspect of exercising dominion because you cannot exercise dominion sitting in your room in some self-absorbed, uh, self-referential state. You have to be out in the world doing things with an interest toward putting those, those things to use. We talked about this a little bit in our work, podcast it was. on work and the, kind of the, and some of comments about social media mm-hmm. and the need mm-hmm. to sort of have a more outward focus. But I, I really think that 
this business of having an outward focus in the world around us for its own sake and not just from a utilitarian perspective, Mm. you know, what can I get out of it? But, you know, for its own sake, there's a show that uh, my wife and I like to watch. It's a really weird show. It's on uh, HGTV, and it's a show about this community of uh, craftsmen who are against what they refer to as throwaway culture. And and so they have developed all these preservative skills. Mm. So they have people that can restore pottery that's broken and do furniture restoration and repair old clocks and machines and all kinds of things. And they, they can do everything from metalwork to woodwork to weaving, you know, to, to reproduce little bits of cloth that match, you know, what was there. And, and they, and so every show people bring these ruined family heirlooms to them and they, they put all these different craftsmen to work to restore that piece to its original state. And there's something beautiful mm-hmm. about not just the fact that they're doing that and sort of pushing back against the idea that everything's disposable, right? Mm. But there's something beautiful about the fact that they've invested themselves in developing these skills yeah. and have, have an interest in these things outside of themselves. Redeeming broken things. Is, yeah. It's a cool thing to, yeah. to be about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think to your point, one, one bit of advice I would give families is when it comes to how you can sort of fulfill your own Genesis mandate to have dominion and steward the earth would be get out into it. Mm. Um, we spend so much of our time indoors today. And so to your point about developing an interest outside yourself, um, you know, as a family, maybe consider growing tomatoes. You can flat mm. grow tomatoes in Texas, by the way, it doesn't yeah. take a ton of work to grow tomatoes, but have, have a garden, um, uh, pull your own weeds, you know, um, visit a national park. You know, learn to love the beauty of the thing that God made uh, for its own sake. Learn. Um, work at the zoo. Work at the zoo. You can volunteer yeah. <laughs> at the zoo. I mean, you, just, you, know, you can volunteer at farms. There's local dairy yeah. farms you could volunteer at. You know, there's any number of things I think that parents could do with their kids to to motivate an interest in God's created order. And I like, Kyle, your point about using proper terms. Maybe avoid other terms like Mother Nature. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, get 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 your terms right. Yeah. That'd, that'd be a good thing to do. My so. my brother, this is completely off subject, <laughs> but my brother, when we were in college, he asked this girl to go to a social club banquet with him, and it was just kind of a date. You know, I mean, he wasn't like somebody he knew well or had a thing for. It was just you know, it's somebody he kind of casually knew. He asked her to go with him, and he showed up to to get her and. You know, this is where you wore formals and suits and all this stuff. And she had her formal on, but she had woven all these flowers in 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 kind of this crown around her head. And uh, and he got to the ba- and he was kind of like and that looks kind of weird, you know. And he got to the banquet, and uh, all his buddies were saying, "So what did you do? Are you dating Mother Nature?" <laughs> you know. <laughs> so they referred to his date the entire time as Mother, Mother Nature. Nature. <laughs> That's hilarious. Bad. So I read this funny story. I'd like to get your you guys closing thoughts here after I after I offer my own here. But um, it was a funny story about a a guy who. So there was this giant meeting of important people to talk about environmental crises, and the guy at the front, the the, the key expert speaker was 
had this big statement at one point. He said, if we don't change uh, our ways and take the climate's need seriously, then in 70 years, every man, woman, and child will be dead. And someone stood up in the crowd and said, what? Was panicked, terrified. What? What did you say? He said, I said, if we don't change our ways, we'll be dead in 70 years. He said, the guy sat down and said, oh, phew, I thought you said 17. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, 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 think, I, I think all the hysteria around man's ability to impact the environment, we, we, we should take one thing seriously, and, and we should take the rest of it with a grain of salt. Man does have a responsibility to engage with God's creation in a manner that honors the Lord. And it is possible for man to do destructive things Mm -hmm. to what God created. And so we can't laugh that off or assume that none of our practices will have any consequences. That's the way that a fool thinks, according to Proverbs. Mm. However, God is sovereign, and he's written... uh, He's written his end for history, and it will come about in a certain way, and it will come about exactly the way that God intends for it to. And greenhouse gases cannot thwart God's sovereignty or God's plan for his creation. Um, and so nothing we do can. So, so all that to say, um, don't, don't be an ostrich and stick your head in the sand, um, but also don't be, don't be in a panic. Trust the Lord. Do what's right. You know, um, I think those are two Christian perspectives on some of the environmentalist hysteria that we hear in our in our times. Yeah, I think what we're wanting is just some honesty in the in the conversation. You know, yeah, how they defend their position really doesn't match up if you take a, a serious look at how to go about it, and so. Uh, it seems that their position is more to dominate and not have an exercise dominion for the good of the people. It's, right. it's a control thing. Right. So I think what we're wanting is honesty in the conversation. Right. That's good. Yeah, I think um, a couple of, I mean, in terms of closing thoughts, yeah. I, I would just say, I, first of all, I'm in, you know, I do engineering work every day, have done for 40 years. And um, the best systems are systems in which, um, there's a feedback loop and symbiosis, you know, where, in other words, uh, the, the output of one system produces good for the other system. And if I were designing the planet and I were designing a planet in which human flourishing was a priority and I designed it in such a way that, uh, the more humans you have, the more carbon dioxide you produce, I would make that, I would make the planet benefit from that carbon dioxide. So here's here's my point. One of the things we know is that carbon dioxide is fuel for plant growth, right? And they're seeing a greening of the world in response to, you know, observable elevations of carbon, carbon dioxide. And the, the complaint I have with a lot of the environmental hysteria, just from a purely scientific and material point of view, is the assumption that elevated carbon dioxide is is of course bad. It may not be bad at all. It may actually allow us to produce more food to feed all those people because it encourages plant growth in areas of the world that we haven't had sufficient plant growth in the past. So uh, my only observation here, I don't know sort of how all that works uh, at that scale, but I do know that to your point, Ben, God is sovereign and uh, 
it's likely that he designed the the planet to um to benefit from the proliferation of human beings uh in 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 the way it's framed and created and the other only other closing comment i would have is that i would just say the big point i think that i would want anybody who's listening to take away with this is um view with suspicion any point of view that suggests that uh the world is not here for human benefit or that human beings don't have a claim on the resources that exist within the world that there's some illegitimate uh something illegitimate about human demands on the planet. That's just not a biblical point of view, uh, starting from the very first pages of Scripture, and you know you can kind of see that throughout. That's good. Mm. Yeah, and I would, I would add on to that, Keith. The, the thing that Genesis 1 shows us is that humanity, as much as we seem to be the problem, is also God's chosen solution. Yeah. Whatever's going wrong with our planet, whatever's going wrong with our environment or creation, whatever is going wrong with ourselves, God has said, I have placed you here to fix this and to uh, be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth and fill it. And so cultivating that love and that desire to see flourishing is so important. I'm amazed by people I meet who are who are scientists. I have scientists in my family kind of on both sides, people in biological scientists working with animals and how can we uh, treat animals well, but also how can we, you know, get a lot out of them. Uh, I have uh, family members in geological sciences who are looking at the world and they can point out volcanoes as you're driving by on the highway. Um, and they just know so much about what God has given us in the world and it leads them to a worship of what God has done and to a desire to see God's work uh, fulfilled. And I think that's the kind of perspective we need to have. God made earth for humanity and made humanity for the earth. The flourishing of one is bound up in the flourishing of the other. We're called and designed by God to have dominion over the earth, which means to steward the resources for the glory of God and the good of humanity. We should avoid the extreme of abuse that ignores the dignity of God's good creation and ruins the earth for future generations. We should also avoid the extreme of idolatry that sees untouched nature as good and sees humanity as a parasite to be subdued. God gave us the job of cultivating the wilderness into a garden. So what God made good, we can make very good. This has been another Faith and Culture Conversation, a ministry of Lake Ridge Bible Church. You can join the conversation by emailing us at faithandculture at lakeridge.org. Special thanks to Jeremy Wilkerson for producing.